Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. Join with me as we pray. I just feel led to pray the Lord's Prayer. So join with me. Father, hallowed be your name. Fathers, we just sang that the heavens thunder and the world was made. The all power, all authority is yours, Father. We thank you that you are hallowed. You are set apart. You are the one and only. We thank you, Father, that your kingdom come. Father, as we just sang that death has been defeated. Father, that your will has been completed. Father, we thank you right now that your kingdom would break in in a fresh and a new way today that we could taste and see that you are here, that you are present, and that your kingdom is real and that it is now. Father, give us today our daily bread to that end. Let your word break open so real, so tangible that we would taste your goodness today and that we would be in awe of your kingdom and that we would be in awe of your power and your authority today. Forgive us, Father, for anything that would lead us to be distracted today, that would lead us to be uh, not present in this moment, that would lead our hearts astray. Father, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and we just ask that right now that as we open your word today, that it would pierce hearts and that it would open our eyes and open our hearts to taste and see your goodness today. Forgive us. Remove any distractions that would lead us into temptation today that would draw us aside and away from focusing on you. For your name is great and you are hallowed and we worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here at Resurrection Church. We're so thankful that you've decided to join with us today. Uh, I would encourage you, we just had a team come back from Mexico, and I'd encourage you if you uh, would love to hear about that, if you've invested in those who went, ask them. Ask them how it went. I'm sure they have something they would love to share with you as far as a, a story or an experience that they had that would be a joy for them to, to share that experience with you. So don't hesitate. Um, they may have a funny story. Uh, they may have a sad story. They may have an exciting story. You just got to be ready. You never know what kind of story you're going to get. Uh, according, we may would say that that's the best trip we've ever had. So maybe that can lead you to start there. How is it the best trip you've ever had? So... 
Uh, open your Bibles, if you would, remain standing. We're going to transition as we worship in the Word. We're going to be in continuing our study. We're in, almost said Luke 14, because I've been, I'm preaching July 31st, so y'all said you're going to get wet and party outside. I'll decide when that party starts, when I get done <laughs> preaching. So, as, as Stephen said, you can wear your swimsuits, but I'm the one who's turning the water on, so we'll see when that happens. Um, but we're in Luke 13 today. Uh, we're going to be reading 22 to the end of the chapter, Luke 13, 22. If you would join me there. Verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathered her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Day. Thank you, John. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Try that again. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. That's better. If you're nervous about Jonathan um, preaching on the 31st when we got a fun day afterwards and you want to get to the water, I'm in the nursery that day, so he... Better not go too long, because um, we, we've only got one service, and that means I'm going to be in there with a mess of children. Um, so anyway, we're looking forward to that. Um, there are certain personality types that tend to swim upstream. They go against the grain. They color outside the lines. But I would venture to say that most of us are at least somewhat skeptical of things that are limited or not widely accepted, right? There's a level of skepticism that goes along with that. It, for example, if you go to a restaurant and you walk in the door and there's nobody in there, what do you think? 
this, I, don't, I wonder if this place is any good. Conversely, you go into a restaurant and it's packed and there's an hour wait, what do you think? This is good and it might be worth the wait. Minority opinions are not easily accepted. Fair? We tend to be skeptical of those things. One of the common themes in all of the Gospels, all four Gospels, is that Jesus, at the height of his earthly ministry, had masses, myriads, thousands of people that were impressed with him, intrigued with him, made significant efforts to be near him, but only a few, relatively speaking, were wholly given over to him. That should get our attention, Christians. Because we live in a part of the world where familiarity with evangelical Christianity is fairly common. It's not hard to find someone who will at least give a nod of approval to Jesus, to the gospel, um, to, to the authority of scripture, even if they're not seriously pursuing a relationship with the living God. It's not hard to find people who will at the very least give a nod to Christianity, right? Oh yeah, I believe that. But that might lead us to think, perhaps wrongly conclude, the vast majority of people in the end are going to be saved, right? Like, like most people are going to get in. Well, Jesus' recent teaching in the Gospel of Luke, and, and, and we should feel this too, has provoked a question, a hard question, but a nonetheless important question this question has come to the forefront of people's minds and they pose it to Jesus. And if we've been paying attention in the Gospel of Luke, I would imagine we're asking the same question. Here's the question, verse 22. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. We know he's headed there to die. In verse 23, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Small in number. That's the question. That makes sense? You feel that question? Have you ever asked that question yourself? Haven't you wondered at some point or another? Like, when, when you think about all the people that have lived or will ever live, is God going to save the majority of them? Are the, are the, is, is the majority of humankind going to be allowed to enter into the kingdom of heaven or are just a remnant going to be saved? When you think about your friends, your family, and your neighbors, haven't you wondered, I wonder, how many of them are going to go to heaven versus how many of them will spend eternity in hell? It's a question that we've pondered. It's a common question. And because we live in a pluralistic culture, we are tempted to believe, perhaps, perhaps wrongly so, we're going to wrestle with the question, that the vast majority of humankind in the end will be saved. There is such thing, such a thing as a hopeful universalist. Honestly, at times I find myself feeling this way. Hoping, praying that in the end God would be so merciful, so kind, the vast majority of people that have ever lived, at least, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here's the problem. When you consider the whole counsel of sacred scripture, 
it would be far easier to make a case that the vast majority of people that have lived or will ever live will not enter the kingdom of God than it would be to make the case that the majority will enter the kingdom of God. Consider Genesis chapter 6. You know the story, Noah and the flood, right? The Bible says that God saw that every intention of man's heart was only wickedness and evil continually. So what did he do? He destroyed everybody with a great flood. Everybody except for one family. One family, Noah's family, was saved. The masses died, and only a few were saved. Why? Why not just wipe everybody out and start over or move on to something else, God? If it was really that bad, why not just wipe out Noah and his family too? What's the only answer? His grace, his mercy, and all for his Glory. It's a common question. Why would God send people to hell? It's a common question. It's a worthy question, question worth wrestling with. But I said this a few weeks ago, the more uncommon question is, why would God save anybody? And if you're honest with yourself, even if you're not a church or a Bible person, maybe you're watching online, if you're honest with yourself, you know the intentions of your heart. You know the wickedness that resides in there. And if you're, I think, if you give an honest assessment of yourself, even though you might try to make the case or make the argument, you know what, I'm a good person. I do the right things most of the time. The question that we ought to ask, the right question is, why would God save Anybody. Again, the only answer is his grace, his mercy, and all for his glory. So the question is posed to Jesus Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus responds. Now, before we consider Jesus' response, let me say a couple of things. First of all, I realize that in, in a crowd like this, some of you have people that you knew and loved who have gone on, they've passed on, and you have questions about their salvation. And this text and this sermon is going to probably raise, bring those questions, bring those maybe concerns, doubts even to the surface. But let me just say this. If you have a loved one who has passed on and you have questions about their salvation, here's what I can tell you from the whole counsel of Scripture. You can trust God. You can trust God with your loved one. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly holy. He only and always does what is right. Okay. Now, that, that's big and broad, and that leaves a lot of room Okay, for questions still, but let's not let emotions about people who have gone on hinder us from being able to consider Jesus' words here. We need to give attention to them. Are you with me? All right. Before we look at his response, let me also say there are a few things Jesus could have said that he didn't. Lord, will those who are saved be few? He could have said yes. He could have been that blunt and that direct. Now, I might make the case that there's an implied yes here, but nevertheless, he didn't say that. He didn't say yes. He could have said no. No, he could have said, the vast majority of people are going to be saved. It's going to be a lot more than you think. He could have said that, but he didn't. He could have also said, it depends. 
It depends on how well my church does and my people do with proclaiming the gospel and how convincing they are and how many people make a decision to let me into their heart. He could have said that, but he didn't. So what did he say? Let's look at it. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you, all you workers of evil. What happens when you find a, an entryway that is wide and tall and big? You just breeze right on in, don't you? You don't, you don't have to think. You can enter casually. You don't have to duck. You don't have to calculate your steps and adjust and fit. But you, you've done this. I've done this. When there's a narrow entryway, when there's something that's restrictive, what do you have to do? You have to aim. You have to calculate. You have to adjust. You might have to duck. You might have to squat down. You might have to turn sideways and try to fit through. What is Jesus saying? There's only one door into the kingdom of heaven. There's only one door. It's exclusive. This is so countercultural. It is exclusive and it's narrow. It's restrictive. You don't enter casually. You don't enter thoughtlessly. That word that's translated strive... In the Greek, it's the word we get our word agony from, agonize. Here's literally what Jesus is saying. There's one door, and it's narrow, and you need to agonize over entering it. Make every effort with all your resources to try to fit in that door. And you might say, well, Bradley, that sounds like meritorious religion. But keep in mind, this is parabolic language that's meant to do two things. It's meant to inform us and awaken us. Inform us and awaken us to the fact that there's a sense of urgency about entering the kingdom of heaven, that there is only one way to be saved, only one door through which to be saved, and it's not only exclusive, it's restrictive, and you don't enter thoughtlessly and you don't enter carelessly. This is why, can I get on my stump a little bit? It drives me crazy now when I hear churches, pastors, and teachers talking about salvation in terms of what we need to be saved from is purposeless living. What we need to be saved from is our insecurity. What we need to be saved from is poverty. What we need to be saved from is unfulfillment and dissatisfaction. It's not like the gospel has nothing to say about those things. But that's not the primary issue evangelistically. What is it that we need to be saved from? God. Salvation. You got to be clear about this, Christians. Salvation, entering the kingdom of heaven, is being saved by God from God. Saved by God 
from God. We were by nature children of That's why it's so restrictive and why it's so exclusive. It's being saved by God from God, and therefore it's God's way or no way. What does Jesus say? Lord, will those who are saved be few? The first part of his answer is this. There's only one door. It's exclusive, and it's narrow. It's restrictive. You don't enter thoughtlessly or carelessly It requires your effort. You need to agonize. You need to strive to enter through that narrow door. Is that part of your gospel proclamation? It's part of Jesus's. He goes on to say, many, so keep in mind, this is the second part of his answer. There's one door, it's narrow and it's exclusive. Will those who are saved be few? One door, narrow, And then he says, many will strive to enter and will not be able. Why? Because at some point, the door of salvation, as narrow and restrictive as it may be while it's open, at some point, it's going to be shut. At some point, the opportunity to enter through that one narrow door will end. And at that point many appeals are going to be made. Appeals on the basis of familiarity and proximity and merit. Lord, we ate with you. Lord, you taught in our streets. And all of those objections, none of them are going to be legitimate. All of those objections are going to be met with the same response. Depart from me. I don't know you. What does Jesus mean by that? He doesn't mean that he's unaware of these people, I don't think. What he means is he doesn't know them salvifically. He doesn't know them. He doesn't, they have not entered through the narrow door while they had the chance. That's why this is urgent and we need to be aware, we need to be mindful of the restrictive, exclusive nature of this one door, this one way, this one name by which we can be saved. Because at some point, the door's going to be shut, and many are going to try to enter at that point. They're going to try to enter. And and listen, they're going to make all these appeals, and they're all going to be met with the same response, depart from me, I don't know you. And so what is the outcome of that going to be? Verse 28, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out, and people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some are last who will be first, some are first who will be last. There's going to be two responses when the door is shut. One is going to be lament. Weeping, grieving. Why? Because this is what I think is true during Jesus' earthly ministry, and I think it's still true today. Many are content to be merely impressed and intrigued with Jesus without taking him very seriously. And at some point, it's going to be clear that was the wrong option. 
in that day, those who settled for lesser treasures, those who simply were content to be intrigued with him and impressed with him, but in the end really didn't want him, they're going to grieve. They're going to cry. They're going to lament in that day in a place that we call hell. Others will gnash their teeth. There will be both grief and rage. How dare you, God? I was a good person. I deserve better than this. But in the end, there will be no legitimate objections. The difference between those who weep and gnash and those who rejoice forever will be grace and grace alone. He goes on to say essentially that those who enter the kingdom of God through the narrow door will not only come from Israel, and praise God for that. I'll say that again, praise God for that. I don't think we have any native Jews in here. We might. Forgive me if you are. But he says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? The way's narrow, it's restrictive, it's exclusive. At some point, that narrow way is going to be, that door's going to be shut, and many will try to enter and won't be able to. And those who are not able to enter at that point will grieve or gnash their teeth or both. But among those who are saved, there are going to be representations from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the typical conventional human standards of status aren't going to matter. This is such good news. The implication here is that many of the ethnic descendants of Abraham are going to be excluded from the kingdom. They're not going to be in. But many, this is what I think he means by saying, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. There are going to be people in the kingdom of heaven, and I feel this for myself, that have no business being there. According to earthly standards. They're not going to be any appeals made on the basis of ethnicity or uh, prestige or honor or merit. They're going to be people that are entering into the kingdom of heaven that we might look at and go, really? It's like when Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said, you see those prostitutes and tax collectors? They're getting into the kingdom ahead of you. So, Jesus' answer to the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few, is this. We're not going to, we're not going to, he doesn't say everything that could be said, but he says enough. And we're just going to consider what he says. There's one door and it's narrow. At some point that door is going to be shut and many will try to get in, many will try to enter and they will make appeals for all the wrong basis and they will be all told, depart from me, I don't know you, but among those who are going to be saved are going to be representations from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the four corners of the earth, and many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. That's Jesus' answer. But the question still remains, why? Why are some 
Why do some enter through the narrow door? And why do others not enter through the narrow door? What's the deciding factor? How does that happen? Why does that happen? Again, I don't think Jesus fully unpacks it, but there is something we can learn, verses 31 to 35. Verse 31. At that very hour, so that's Luke's way of telling us we're still on the same subject, some Pharisees came to him and said, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go tell that fox. What a gift that is from Jesus. Oh, I love that. Thank you, Lord. It's the closest we get to Jesus doing some name calling here. You go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. You would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I don't know if these Pharisees were sincere or not in warning Jesus. I tend to think not. I almost wonder if they were trying to bring him back down to earth, maybe trying to see if they could scare him, see if he'd turn tail and run. Like, Jesus, you talk a big game about the kingdom and who's in and who's out, but Herod's going to kill you. Herod's going to kill you. Maybe they're just trying to get rid of Jesus, but Jesus has none of it. He says, you go tell that fox, and essentially his answer is, Herod's not in charge here. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there when I finish my mission, and that's not going to happen one minute sooner than I intend. Right? That's essentially his answer. I think his reference to you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's the triumphal entry. I'm going to Jerusalem, and this is what it's going to be like when I get there. And that's where I'm going to die. And then he starts to talk about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, a city that kill, has this long and storied history of killing and stoning the prophets and messengers that have been sent to her by God for centuries. Jesus laments over that. He laments and he, over the fact that he longs to gather the children of Israel under his wings of safety and care, but this is huge. They would not. That's what the end of verse 34 says. Literally, the translation is, you're not willing. Why is it that some people don't enter through the narrow door, as restrictive and exclusive as it may be, why is it that some don't enter? Because they don't want to. That's his answer. He's on the same subject. I would gather you, Israel, Jerusalem, under my wings, but you're not willing. You don't want to. Free will, right? 
Free will. Boy, do we get that wrong. I'm going to give a very intense example, okay? Fair warning. This is intense. Free will. This is how we typically understand it. I have the choice right now to step off this stage, take my wife in my arms, and choose to either give her a big old kiss or beat her mercilessly. I have that freedom, right? Yes, there are consequences for either action. But I can do whatever I want. I have a free will. I can make that choice right now. Right? No. Not only would I not beat my wife, I could not beat my wife. Do you know why? Because I don't want to. My will does not determine my desire. My desire determines my will. Do I make choices? You bet your bottom dollar I do. Do you make choices? Yes, you do. And are you responsible for your choices? Yes. But is your will free? No. Your will's not free. This is one of the biggest misunderstandings, I think, as it relates to Christianity and to the world in general, to our essence as human beings. Do we have a will? Yes. Can we make choices? Yes. But all our will, my will, your will, is bound to what we want. It's bound to our desires. I only do what I want to do. That's why the Bible speaks of those who, in the, in the unregenerate state, as what? Slaves to sin. That's what Jesus said, John 8, 34. You're slaves to sin. You're bound to your will. Your will is bound to your desires. You choose your own way. Why? Because you want to. But then when we're born again, the Bible starts to talk about us as what? Slaves to righteousness. What makes the difference, people? Think about that. How do I go from being a slave to sin, bound by my desires to sin and evil, to being a slave to righteousness? There is no neutral ground here. You realize that, right? You're a slave one way or the other. You're either bound to your sin or you're free from your sin and you're bound to righteousness. Why do people not enter through the narrow door? Because they don't want to. And they make that choice because they want to avoid the narrow door. And they're responsible for that choice because they made it. Look at Romans. What makes the difference between slave to sin, slave to righteousness? Romans 6, verse 17. Look at this. But thanks be to who? Boy, isn't that interesting. Thanks be to me. 
Because I chose to get myself out of slavery to sin and become a slave to... No. Thanks be to... So God has done something. Fair? God did something. Divine intervention was required for what? That you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart. You hear that? What does that mean? Your desires have changed. Oh my goodness, something's happened. God did something in me that changed my wanter. He did something in you that changed your wanter. And so now you're free from being bound to the desire for sin. This is why Paul will say, can, can we who have died to sin still live in it? By no means, right? That's not the gospel. You've been set free from that and what? You've become obedient from the heart. You're not a robot. Don't ever, listen, when you talk about the sovereignty of God and people want to talk, start talking about being a robot, this verse right here dispels that notion. I'm not a robot. I want him. I want the narrow door. I want that restrictive, exclusive, squeeze my way in kind of salvation. I want to strive. I want to agonize because my desires are now for him. He's opening his wings and he wants to gather me under those wings of safety and care. You bet your bottom dollar I'm running to that. I'm not a robot. I want it. And I didn't come up with that on my own. God did something, thanks be to God. I was once a slave to sin, but now I'm obedient to the heart, from the heart, to the standard of teaching in which you committed, verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become a what? Oh, man, Paul, you can preach it all by yourself. Jesus would say, John 6, 44, this is all over our Bibles. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, say it. This is hard, I know, but it's true. Don't, if, if you came into Christianity thinking that everything was just going to be easy and fit on the, the plate nice and neat and, and you know, just easy on the palate with everything. God, God is big. God is wise. God is sovereign. He is love. He is mercy. He is grace. He is our Father. We are to respond to him as his children. We can crawl up in his lap and run into his arms of safety. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. All that's true. But the Bible also calls him terrible. He's a lion and he's not a tame one. He is God. So receive this with fear and trembling. Why do you think the Apostle Paul talks about coming on his evangelistic missions with fear and trembling? The gospel message that we're used to today excludes fear and trembling. We've numbed it. We've given the gospel a shot of Novocaine. Here's the reality. The door's narrow. It's exclusive. And it's only open for a while. It's urgent. 
And the call to you, to me, to all of us, to everyone that we might share the gospel with is agonize over that door. Run to him. You must be saved. No, not from your unfulfillment and dissatisfaction. The gospel will say some things about that, but you must be saved from him, by him. And the difference is going to be his divine intervention to change your wanter because you're bound to your desires. I'm bound to my desires. My will is not free now, and it never has been. But now my will is bound to the one who first loved me. When I was dead, my trespasses and sins. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And he opened my eyes by his divine grace to see that. And like you, like many of you, I ran through that narrow door. I ducked, I turned sideways, I'm striving because I see there's only one name given among men by which we can be saved. So God is not a weak, hands-off God. God has the power to save all people. And between you and me, off the record, I hope, he's, I hope he does. But regardless, we need to heed Jesus' words here. In his perfect righteousness and wisdom, he has decided, decided from all eternity to save some. That is his sovereign right, and he does it for his glory. And those he saves, those who enter through the narrow door, those whom he changes their wanter, and then their desire is for him, and they enter through that door, they will come from every tribe and nation and language and enter the kingdom of God. Let me just read you some passages that where we anchor our understanding of this divine intervention. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 to 6, this will be on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he what? Say it again. In him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he what? Predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of whose will? To the praise of whose grace, glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Acts chapter 13, verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You see that? You see that conscious choice? Thrust it aside, judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Do you see that? Romans 8, verse 28. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you might struggle to swallow that pill of truth, but you know it's true. How do you know that, Bradley? Here's how I know that. Because I know how you and I pray for those that we know and love who aren't saved. We do not pray as if the deciding factor between them becoming going from being a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness is their own free will. We don't pray that way. You don't pray that way. How would you pray that way? God, I, I know you can't do anything about their free will, so I'm not sure what to ask. What do you pray? God, save them. Overthrow their heart. Wreck their minds. Don't let them sleep. I've prayed that over so many people. Because I don't sleep well, and I figure, you know what? If they're not saved, they're not going to sleep either. God, keep them up. Wake them up. I've even prayed this, and it's a hard, scary prayer to pray, and I'm careful when I pray it. Lord, let them hit the bottom. Bring them to the end of their selves. Make them see. Make them see. They don't just need a fix circumstantially. They need your grace. Take out their heart of stone. Put in a heart of flesh. That's how you pray, right? And rightfully so. I got two takeaways. Here's number one. Don't pray weak prayers for the unsaved. Pray bold prayers. Bombard heaven. You say, Bradley, what's the point? If God, listen, You have to know this about God. He's the God who not only determines the end, but the means. How did you come to know Christ? Faith comes by hearing by the word of God. You know how you came to know Christ? God determined that someone would proclaim to you. And you know what they did? They obeyed. Not because they're robots, but they did it from the heart. They wanted to. They gave of themselves their voice and their mind to proclaim to you the truth. There's only one door, and it's narrow. Enter through it and be saved. Christ died so that you might be forgiven and have eternal life. Someone proclaimed that to you. Whether you were young or old or somewhere in between, you heard. And in that hearing, this is why we say, Thanks be to God. He did something. He set your will free from sin. And he bound your will to his righteousness. He did that. So don't pray weak prayers for the unsaved. 
Keep praying those bold prayers. And if you're here today or you're watching online and you see the narrow door, but you haven't entered it, heed the warning from Jesus. Because it's not just a warning, it's an invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Rest for your souls. Enter through that narrow door and be saved. Strive to enter while there's still time. Don't wait. Respond while the door is still open. So I'm going to pray, and then Jonathan's going to come. And for those of you that might need prayer, he's going to tell you what what you can do this morning before you leave. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your words. We are... Hmm. We are humbled by them. And I pray that we are rejoicing as we receive these these words, these significant words from you about what it means to be saved and enter into the kingdom, that we as Christians would rejoice that you have brought us in through the narrow door. And we pray for those among us or those that we know or both who have not entered through that door that you would, by your grace, save them. Save them and call them to yourself. Draw them to yourself. And let us be your mouthpiece of reconciliation. That is our prayer today. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z-Faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.